Welcome to the LifeSpring Podcast. We are a growing community of Jesus followers who are being changed by Him and are helping others to do the same. Our mission is to join God in restoring broken lives, families, and communities here and around the world. During His ministry on earth, Jesus had powerful encounters preserved for us in the Gospels. Each one reveals something new about Jesus, and each time we hear him speaking directly to us. Join us on this journey through the book of John as we let Jesus show us who he is, how he encounters us today, and how we can trust and follow him even more. One of them, of his personal direct um, interactions, and even though he's not physically here, the premise is Jesus is still the same, and we're able to experience spiritual encounters that create experiential changes in our lives and in our world. And so we've been looking at them. And one of the things that has struck me so far is not a one has taken place in the temple or in the synagogue. These encounters have been out and about in the midst of the everyday life and people's um, coming and going, and that's cool. It's cool to know we don't just meet God and encounter Jesus in a gathering like this. We also encounter him all week long, all day, you know, all day long. Second thing is it's neat to see how Jesus interacts with all different kinds of people. There's not a profile or a type. You know, we have John the Baptist. He was looking and hungering and longing and searching. And so Jesus encounters people like that. And then there were some of the followers. They were going about their ordinary lives, but he invited them in to come and see, to explore, to investigate. They were curious, though somewhat hesitant, and he worked with them. And then last week we saw a desperate situation and somebody who cried out to Jesus, came to Jesus with a need to do something. And we see Jesus respond to that and interact in that situation. Well, today we're going to look at a character who's a little more on the skeptical, um, cautious, conflicted side of things. And the big idea we're going to go after is this. This is the idea. that encounters with Jesus shift our paradigms. And so a paradigm shift, what is it? It's a radical change in our understanding of something that we take for granted. One of the TV shows that portrays paradigm shifts and how people react to them that I love as a prankster at heart is the Carbonaro effect. This guy is a magician and a prankster, and it's a reality hidden camera TV show where he does some kind of thing that people don't know is a trick, and then it, causes, it just blows their minds. And they're like trying to, you can see the reactions here, like people trying to wrap their heads around what they just experienced. And um, it's just fascinating. And it's a great tell on human nature and how we react to paradigm shifts. Do we just walk away unbelieving? Do we dive in hook, line, and sinker? Or do we just sit there and try and make sense of it? A paradigm shift is something unpredictable, sudden, disruptive. It's invisible, but it has some pretty profound, far-reaching effects. There are societal and cultural paradigm shifts from the scientific revolution, industrial revolution, civil rights movement, information age. Currently, there's one underway right now with artificial intelligence. But I want to focus on personal, individual paradigm shifts. And some of these, um, some of us are going through them right now. And some of us may be resisting them right now. These are part of the life stages and the life cycle. Um, whether it's stepping into dating or marriage, which is a pretty massive shift, or um, actually it's, it's not on here, but working through a divorce is a major paradigm shift. Um, having children, parenting. I mean, you know and people tell you 
that it's going to be the most amazing thing, but to literally hold your heart in your hands and nurture and nourish and, and build into this growing child. And then um, empty nest. Um, we're sort of kind of in that stage or heading into that stage right now, and it truly is. It's like a different paradigm and just like adapting and pivoting. And then, of course, aging and loss. The, the neuropsychology of dealing with a loss, uh, particularly an unexpected or unplanned, um, you know, I, I still to this day, like my mindset, it's, it's come a long ways, but I'm just so oriented to having two daughters here. And Kayla's not with us here anymore. And this is a paradigm shift. And here's the thing about these. You can resist paradigm shifts. You can refuse to embrace them and honestly suffer some of the losses and costs of that. Um, you know, many people find themselves later in life sad and disappointed with regret that they did not choose to embrace a new paradigm and learn how to live into it, whatever that might be. And so I know somebody who, I'm going to shift now from personal life stage paradigms to spiritual ones. Um, he had come to LifeSpring for a service years and years ago, and he was um, somebody who had a lot of intellectual questions. He was a double major at an Ivy League school with psychology and philosophy. And so he approached me after the service and engaged me with some questions, some intellectual questions about Jesus and the way of Jesus. And so we planned to meet. And um, he let on when I came to his house that he is an active heroin user and that that's the reason he had to leave his Ivy League education. He was not able to sustain his addiction and his education. And he began to pepper me with questions, and we engaged, and I'm certainly no expert, but I've thought about some of these things and had to reach some peace in my own heart about how to make sense of some of this. Um, but at one point in the conversation, I, I just felt prompted to say, if there was a button right here on the table, and you could push that button, and every last doubt once and for all would be resolved, and you would know that you know that you know that it's true. Jesus is who he said he is and who the Bible depicts. And he did what the Bible says he did. And it's for the purposes. And he's going to come back and he's going to make it all right. Would you push the button? And he did something very interesting. He put his head down, shook it. He looked up and he said, when I was growing up, my dad called himself a Christian and I watched him beat my mom. I wouldn't push the button. And what that revealed is there are intellectual questions, and they're often a smokescreen for deeper issues, maybe emotional barriers. I have another friend, and um, he was brought up in Eastern Orthodox family, which is a pretty um, formal religious expression. And he had walked away from that. He was a science major. He had become a doctor, or actually was, I think, in his residency to be a doctor. So he was trained in the scientific approach and an evolutionary perspective. And he had embraced it. And he had friends who were Christians who talked about God and Jesus. And he, he, he was kind of annoyed by them, but entertained their questions for a bit. And it was starting to nag at him, like, what is with these people? Why can't they just accept the reality? We're born, we live, we die, and that's it. That's the end of it. You just do the best you can with what you've got. Um, but one time it was nagging him, and he finally one time he said, all right, God, all right, God, if you're out there, just show yourself. Just repeat Jesus. Just appear to me right here. If you really are real and you want me to believe in you, why are you making it so hard on me? Why don't you just show up? And sort of smugly, 
He looked and saw nothing. And then he started to get haunted with this thought that if he had seen Jesus right then and there appear, he would have written it off as a hallucination, as a rational projection. And all of a sudden, he realized in that moment that the issue for him was not evidence, it was willingness. He was not willing for it to be true. He was not willing to embrace a new paradigm. Some of you remember or maybe have seen the movie The Matrix from 1999. Neo is offered a choice by Morpheus who says, you take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. That moment, for me, feels like the text we're about to study in John chapter 3. As Jesus encounters somebody and offers him a new paradigm. And before we dive in, I just want to ask you to think for a second. Am I willing to embrace a new paradigm from Jesus that will have drastic and profound changes to my life in the world as I know it? Am I even willing to go there? If not, no worries. You just you know, take the blue pill and zone out and daydream and you can think about whatever you want to think about. But if you are willing, I want you to come with me down this hole. Let's see where it goes. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. We'll call him Nico. Um, Nico is uh, a religious leader. It's the highest governing body of the Jews under the Roman occupation, and it's called the Sanhedrin. We find out later that's the, the group he was a part of. Sanhedrin was primarily composed of a group called the Sadducees, the religious political group, a little more secular. They only accepted the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures and um, rejected um, life after death and angels and the oral Torah. The Pharisees were the more conservative minority group on the Sanhedrin. But either way, this is pretty significant for this guy to come to Jesus. And, um, and so he, we know he was successful. He was wealthy. He was famous or respected in his community. And um, he was a pretty sharp guy. So here he is. And uh, he says, uh, there was a man named Nicodemus. Oh, yeah, I should mention this. Pharisee, good or bad? Is he a good guy or a bad guy? Because of some of our experiences, we think a bad guy. But actually, Jesus said this about this, about Pharisees. Do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. And elsewhere, he talks about how uh, even when they do practice right, it's done with the wrong motives. And so it'd be easy to write off the Pharisees as the bad guys and don't even pay attention to them. Um, but Jesus doesn't. Man, he just keeps going after them. He keeps having meals with them. He keeps trying. And I just love this about Jesus. He does not write off anybody. Um, and so here is Jesus emphasizing or, or interacting with this guy, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night. It says that. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, that's an important detail, by the way, at night, and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Jesus was a busy guy. He had a lot of people crowded around him. And if you wanted a little one-on-one -on -one time to interact, it was hard to get because of that. So maybe he came to Jesus at night for privacy, to be able to engage directly. Or maybe he did not want to be directly associated with Jesus and have this kind of a conversation with Jesus in public where other people, perhaps his peers, 
on the Sanhedrin, the fellow Pharisees would see him. We don't know. It's left a little ambiguous at this point, but I do think it's worth pausing and just thinking about this encounter taking place at night. I don't know about you, but I get busy in my day, and I'm involved in all kinds of stuff, and sometimes it's late at night or early in the morning, mostly for me, where I'm able to think a little more and where I'm more prone to interact directly with with Jesus like this. And I just think it's good to know Jesus doesn't take naps or sign off or clock out. He is there. He is ready, willing, and available to meet with you late at night, early in the morning. Perhaps Nicodemus is coming racked with a struggle, a conflict within him in his mind and his heart because he, he says this, we've seen what you've done, we've heard what you've said, we know there's something there and yet, but my, guy, my friend, the guy who said, my dad called himself a Christian and I grew up watching him beat my mom. There's something there, it's a barrier. And so he's coming to Jesus at night, not unlike the way we come to Jesus, angst, fear, worry, shame, regret, uncertainty, confusion, doubts, struggles. And here we find Jesus willing and interacting with him. And so he says this comment seems like a compliment to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't respond with, well, thank you very much. I've been working really hard, and it's been pretty cool to see all that God has done through me. No, Jesus almost seems abrupt and blunt, possibly even rude. Jesus responds, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And it's as if he knows something that we don't about what's going on, which is he does. Um, in fact, at the end of chapter 2, we hear that this is the, these are the verses in the Bible right before John introduces, now there was a man of the Jews, a ruler, um, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night. It says, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew he himself knew what was in a man. So Jesus was able to see past the surface and cut through the smoke screens that we put up there to get right to the root, and he knew what was going on with Nicodemus. You see, Nicodemus had a paradigm he had been steeped in as he grew up, and it was a common one that's actually quite common today. It's actually embedded in our human nature. And so as a Pharisee, he had learned there's many rules to follow, many boxes to check. And by working hard and trying really, really hard and staying focused, you could climb the ladder and you could get closer to God and you could become something, someone that God would look at and notice and pay attention to. Nicodemus was steeped in a tradition that had become about what you do, not a tradition that focused on what God does for you. And Jesus is putting his finger on this issue. And he's also someone who grew up with the idea that the kingdom of God is the future. And so they believed the present age with all of its mess was going to be, there was going to be an intervention. God was going to intervene in the day of the Lord and he was going to make things right. And they had prophecies, all kinds of them in the Bible that were given to them, passed down through the ages to anticipate the age to come, the kingdom of God. 
Jesus comes along and he starts to mess with that because he starts talking about how the kingdom is right here and it's growing like a tiny little seed or like yeast working its way through dough. And Jesus kind of mashed up an overlap between the present age and the kingdom of God. And we're living in this sort of box in the middle. And this was, this was a paradigm shift. But the thing that's really grabbing him here is this idea of unless you're born again. Now, born again is an idea that um, is not new and it's a familiar term for the most part in American culture. Um, the born again idea has some stereotypes associated with it. One is that you need to be born again to go to heaven when you die and not go to hell, which is not at actually, actually at all what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about you need to be born again to see, to perceive life different, to live differently now in the present. So that's the first one. But the born again part was the one that, that Nicodemus is really struggling to understand. He says you must be born again. Now, born again today is for the people who are really emotional and needy and need some kind of emotional experience. Or people think born again, oh, that's for the broken people, the down and out, the people who are dysfunctional and addicted. They need a born again experience. Or, oh, that's for closed-minded conservatives. They're the ones who born again applies to. But this guy is none of the three. He's successful. He's wealthy. He's quite sharp intellectually and by no means was he closed-minded conservative. Here he is coming to Jesus, calling him rabbi, and, and wanting to understand and wanting to explore. And so Jesus is putting his finger on an issue and that Nehemiah, excuse me, Nicodemus had about how we get right with God. And Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's trying to dissect the metaphor. He doesn't literally think Jesus means, you know, big guy, climb in mom's womb again. No, he's, he's trying to understand where is Jesus going with this? It doesn't make sense. And it's so telling because here is Nicodemus trying to figure out what to do to be born again. He's in a doing mindset. What did you do to be born you didn't do anything. It was done to you. Now, by all means, you know, I guess a baby can come out easy or come out kicking and screaming and kind of resisting the idea. So maybe you put up a fight, but you were born and you didn't do anything to be born. And so Jesus is going there with him. And so he asked this question. By the way, what is the universal um, commonality to all religions throughout all time and all around the planet. They're all based on what you do in order to reach nirvana, experience uh, existential bliss, reach paradise, go to heaven. They're all, it's just kind of embedded in our human nature. We want to control it. We want to be the ones who do it. And this is what's so countercultural and upside down about Jesus' way. And so he, 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 he elaborates here. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He basically says all of your moral and religious success is not enough for you to see or enter into the kingdom of God. You need God to do something for you that you can't do for yourself. 
And so this idea of being born of water and spirit, scholars, theologians wonder, uh, is this baptism, you know, born of water and then born of spirit, spiritual baptism? Or some scholars say this is what they call hendiatus, both of the two, born of water and spirit, together refer to a spiritual rebirth. And then there's another view, and that's that he's referring to the natural birth physically, which is kind of a watery um, experience due to amniotic fluid coming out and We need to not only be physically born, but we need to be spiritually born, which is, I think, probably the direction he's going here because he says that which is born of the flesh is flesh. So he's comparing being born of water and being born of the flesh with being born of the spirit. And he says this also, um, it actually says this in John chapter 1, to all who did receive him, who believed in Jesus' name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born, so here's our metaphor, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. So somebody is not just born because a man and a woman came together and and had a baby, but they're born in a spiritual sense, in terms of a relationship with God, born into a relationship with him as a much-loved child. And you can just imagine the look on his face. It's like the Carbonaro effect. He's just not getting this. And, and, and you might even be here too, right now, and you're like, oh yeah, I hear you, I hear you. But you're not getting it either. It's not based on what you do and how well you perform or what you achieve. It's based on something God does for you. And so he looks at him in the face and Jesus says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This uh, wind analogy is, um, I think, really compelling. What do you, can anybody control the wind? Can anybody predict the wind? I mean, you see the videos of, of the wind blowing and how it... I mean, there's no ability for any of us to control or predict what God does because he's God. But we can submit to it, resist it, or excuse me, respond to it, or we can resist it. And, um, and so he's using this wind analogy to say, Nicodemus, Nico, you've got to accept and submit that this is not going to be based on how hard you try, how good you do, or how bad you are. It's going to be based on something God does for you. It's a new paradigm. Which, by the way, did any of you have flying dreams? Have you ever flown in your dreams? Just a quick show of hands. I'm actually curious on this. Okay, quite a few. I'm curious if we could talk, how do you fly? Is it like the Superman, head first? For me, it's been more like floating. And it's like I'm on a grassy hillside, or maybe even with a group of people, and if I try to do it, it doesn't work. It's almost like I have to just relax, stop trying, but believe it's going to happen. And I almost feel like this is where Jesus was taking him. And, um, and so I just kind of go like this. I was kind of hoping it would happen right now. <laughs> it didn't happen. That's why I hold on to those dreams. And so the wind, God does it, but you can submit to it or resist it. Nicodemus says, how can this be? He's just baffled, which is understandable, by the way. So Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and I love that Jesus is going to plural here, we me and the Holy Spirit, we're speaking right now of what we know and bearing witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. 
If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He's basically saying, Nicodemus, you should know this. You're a student of the law. You know the stories. You know the prophecies of Ezekiel. Ezekiel talked about needing to be washed clean and being given a new heart by God to replace our hard hearts, a soft heart that is willing to obey him, the work of God to do something for you. And so he's He's rightly kind of calling out, but notice what he's not doing. He's not cutting Nico off and saying, I'm done with you. I've reached my limit. You're just not getting it. You're just not willing. And this is something I think all of us need to remember in our questions, in our doubts, in our struggles. God never gives up on us. And he never turns around and walks away because look what happens next. Jesus continues here with Nico and gives him a different analogy to try to help him understand. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's talking about himself, that I'm God and I've come. Um, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, ding, 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 this is from the book of Numbers, he would have known this story. So the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He goes back to a well-known story of what happened in Israel's history. And there's not enough time to unpack this. Short version, the Israelites basically said, no thanks, God. I don't want to do your way. I don't want to trust you. I'm going to do it my own way. And God, as any loving parent would do, sends loving discipline. It happens to manifest in the form of venomous snakes. And they are biting the people. And so I I thank God every time he gives me a tangible thing to get my attention. Well, that was tangible. Their community was having venomous snakes biting them. And so what does Moses do? He doesn't say, we're screwed, it's over. He says, here's how we respond to this. And he's led to forge this bronze snake. He sticks it on a pole and he lifts it up. And he says, anybody with a simple act of faith from wherever you are, maybe you're caught in your tent dying of whatever venomous snake bite, you can look up at the pole with this bronze snake on it, the symbol of the very thing that was causing their death, and you can look up at that and you can be healed. And so what Jesus does is uses this Old Testament story that Nicodemus would have known and been familiar with, and he draws a spiritual analogy from it. Obviously, he's talking about himself, that he would be someone who on the cross pays the penalty for our sin, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so we look up at him and the scorn and the shame of him becoming the perpetrator and the pedophile and the liar and the thief and the, and the murderer and every terrible bad thing whose roots are in us all. And, he, and, and by looking up at him in a simple act of faith, anyone from wherever they're at, can be saved. And he's using this analogy. Now, what comes next is John 3.16. You've seen it probably on a sign at a football game. If you've grown up in church, it might have been one of the first verses that you memorized. We don't know if it should be in red letters or black letters. In your Bibles, many of them, there's red letters. Those are the words of Jesus. And then the black letters are just the writers, the author. And so some Bibles put it in quotes as Jesus saying, it doesn't matter because the point is the same. This is written, and this is the paradigm shift. Let me read it for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, 
but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. This is the paradigm shift. So many of us think, I'm a pretty good person. I try pretty hard. That should be good enough for God. I'm better than other people, perhaps, is what you think. And Jesus says, nope, you need to be born again. No matter how good you are, you need to be born again. Because the reality is we're not born into this world innocent and perfect and holy. We tend to become people who follow the pattern of our predecessors because we've inherited their nature. We tend to be people who go our own way, rebel, and that is called living in the darkness. We're born into a a situation that Jesus says is condemnation. We stand guilty in the darkness, caught red-handed, busted. The question is, how do we respond to Jesus who came not to condemn us, but to save us? He came to bring the light so that we could turn and look in faith. And here's the thing, not stay in the darkness, believing he's the light, but come to the light like a moth and draw near to him and believe that this light is the life. And so by coming in faith, and we call it following Jesus, coming into his ways, we experience a whole new life. It's eternal life. It's not just when we die, it's right now. And so the paradigm shift is this. No matter how good you are, Nobody is good enough. Every single person needs to be born again, something that only God can do for you. And yet, at the same time, no matter how bad you are, you can be born again. That's the other problem. Some people think, I don't need Jesus because I'm a good person. That's the me. That's the Nico problem that Jesus is putting a finger on. Other people think, there's no hope for me. I'm so messed up. There's no chance that God would ever want to accept me And Jesus confronts that too because he says, whoever, anyone, and it's as simple as an act of faith, looking and trusting what he's done and coming to him into the light and loving the light. And so Jesus, the good news of Jesus confronts our two extremes. One is legalism. That's the idea that God is holy, so try hard to be righteous enough. Some of you, by the way, your fingers are bloody from scraping and trying so hard to be good enough for God, and you live with that lingering sense of you're not there, or you live with a smug self-righteousness that looks down on others like the Pharisees. So you try to repent of your sins, and if you do feel feelings of guilt, you try hard to work them off. You get out of the doghouse by doing your penance and making up for the bad stuff you've done. The opposite extreme is liberalism. God is love. So don't worry about trying to be righteous or holy. You don't need to repent of anything. You don't need to feel guilty. You shouldn't. Guilt's a bad thing. And so that's the other extreme. But Jesus actually confronts both of them. Here's the good news. God is holy and God is love. And he offers a free gift. 
that any one of you, any one of us can receive. It's the free gift of his righteousness that changes us from the inside out. We do good things not in order to, but because of the grace of God in our lives. And so we do repent, but we repent both of our sins and our self-righteousness that causes us to pridefully think we're good enough or better than other people. And when we have feelings of guilt, we let them drive us not to work harder to make up for our bad, but to trust harder in Christ to take it away. Well, what happened with Nicodemus? Nico, our guy, did he, did he say, I'll take the red pill. I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus, I want that. Or did he say, no thanks, I'm going to take the blue pill and go back where I was. We don't know because the story ends here, but it doesn't end for Nico. He shows up again two other places in John's gospel. One is in chapter 7, a big controversy about Jesus, and he's standing up for Jesus with his fellow, um, the fellow Pharisees. He's saying, let's hold off, time out. Let's you know, kind of slow them down on their uh, murderous animosity towards Jesus. And then the last place is here in John 19. It says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, so he's a secret or a closet disciple, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Here he is, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. It's still a little unclear. Where was Nicodemus? I mean, clearly he's stepping up but secretly in some way, secretly, but not really secretly, putting himself at risk. And to me, I feel like the ambiguity here is intentional because it forces me to ask, where am I? What would I have done? Would I have embraced Jesus and stepped out of the closet to publicly identify with him? Or would I have stayed in the shadows with fear and let my skepticism and cynicism and doubts hold me back? And I feel sad. In the same way I feel sad for every person who refuses to accept a new paradigm. I know someone who um, resisted the idea of marriage and settling down. He just wanted to date. He just wanted to have fun. He just wanted to enjoy life and later found himself in life single and wishing he would have just gone the path where he felt he should have gone to, to get married. I know people who are stuck decades after a loss, unwilling to accept a new paradigm of being able to live again after a loss. And I feel fat, sad for Nicodemus and for myself. For every way I might have resisted the joyful freedom of trusting the grace of Jesus, where it's not based on me and my effort. And guys, this is about not just being born again once, but being born again and again and born again again Every time we start to think that it's resting, the weight is on my shoulders, where we focus on it's what I have to do instead of what he has done for me. I want the band to come up and I want to land this plane with a big idea and a challenge. Encounters with Jesus shift our paradigms, or at least they can if we're willing. And there's so many of them. The idea that the kingdom of God is present, that it's about now, not just next in the future, 
The idea that the call of Jesus is to live differently in our relationships, to love, to forgive, and to bless our enemies and not keep a list of wrongs and cut people off, but to try to reconcile, to find ourselves drawn to the margins, to the ostracized, to the people that others have written off, to see hope and value in them and compassion for them. There are so many paradigms of Jesus that challenge us. The one we've looked at here today is that the nature of our relationship with him is based on grace, not on works. And it's attained through simple faith. Who is born into God's kingdom? Who is able to see and enter God's kingdom? Who receives eternal life? Only those who are born again that the spirit of God calls. Who is born again and able to enter the kingdom? Every last one of us who believes. That's what Jesus said. Why don't you stand to your feet? This is the challenge. Believe in who Jesus really is to really live. I'm gonna give you a bonus challenge too. Once you've done that, take this paradigm to others. Hold out the red pill. Give them a chance to joyfully step into this new way of living. God, we believe, help our unbelief. It's not nighttime, but we're coming to you in this last song and we're asking you to move us, open our eyes and our hearts to understand and embrace this great truth. Jesus, you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life, and you've done it. Thank you. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. You can find us online at lscommunity.org or on Instagram at LifespringCommunity and on Facebook at LifespringCommunity.Harrison. If you live near or are visiting the Harrison, Ohio area, we'd love to have you join us. We gather together for services at 5 p.m. on Saturdays and at 9.30 and 11.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings.